and it goes out. And we're out looking for it, we can't find the ball. <laughs> and Andrew said, we've got to watch the newspapers for a headline that says, Camel Chokes on Squash Ball. I'm James Zog, and this is Outside the Glass. When I started covering squash as a journalist in the mid-1990s, I immediately bumped into Martin Bronstein, a British newspaper reporter. He was friendly, kind, and very wry. For years, we'd save seats for each other in the stands and during matches talk and compare notes and gossip. Two years ago, I met with Bronstein in a room at Hampton Court Palace outside of London. You might hear a few people coming and going. It wasn't completely quiet. There, Bronstein told me his life story. Born on 19th of July, 1935, in the east end of London, he had a remarkable childhood, as you'll hear. He left school at 16 to work as a messenger for an advertising agency, then from 18 to 20 was in the British Air Force. And when he got out, he lived in London. He had a voracious appetite for culture, and he was one of those very few people who at any given time had seen every single play on in the West End. In 1961, Bronson moved to Montreal, and he crafted an incredibly varied career. He worked in radio, reviewing plays, writing radio dramas. He founded an improv acting troupe. He launched comedy festivals. He did a bit of stand-up. He wrote a play. He wrote the screenplay for a 1971 film, The Importance of Being Sexy. He also was a freelance journalist with a weekly satirical column in Montreal and then in Toronto after he moved there in 1971. He also became the editor of Canada's first soccer magazine and then the editor of a travel magazine. And he started freelancing for the Globe and Mail about squash. When he returned to England in 1983, he began writing for the British papers and soon became a co-editor of Squash Player magazine. In the past few years... He's taken up the jazz saxophone. So here, on his 85th birthday, is Martin Bronstein. All right, Martin Bronstein. Where did you... You grew up in the east end of, of London, right? That's right, yeah. So you were born in 1770, well, <laughs> um, Born in 1935. So what was the east end like in 1935? Oh, oh. the east end is, was rubbish. And I lived in an East End borough called Hackney, and it was just, I couldn't wait to get away. We were poor, my father was a gambler, it was a, uh, we had eight kids in the family. It was just, what, what number were you? Number four. Number four. And, um, and your father was a what? A gambler. Oh, a gambler. I thought that I was like... Stupid, yeah. stupid, irresponsible, shouldn't have ever been able, allowed to father children. And uh, then in 1939-40, we were evacuated to the West Country and Somerset because of the war. All, uh, all the kids or the well, whole we family? Sp- yeah, well, we all scattered around. They got rid of all the kids from London. Mm. Because the one, we finally all got together in a dreadful two-bedroom, two two-up, two-down, stone floors, no electricity, no heating, no water, nothing. And my mother had to do for eight children like that. Anyway, we came back to London. So you were out for f- five years, six years? Uh, out of, out, six years. Out of London. Yeah. The war ended in '45. That's right. The, uh, the the council couldn't find us uh, accommodation for a family of ten until December '46. Mm. So we didn't get back until a year and a half. So where before. where were you out in in in, in England? Where where did you go? It was called uh, West Country, Devon. No, in, in Somerset, which uh-huh. is in the West Country, 
Cornwall, Devon. In, in a village or? In a very tiny village called Noel St. Giles. And, um, you know, we went to school there. Fortunately, we all had a brain. All eight of us had a brain. Uh, none of us went to university. Uh, but because, you know, we were desperate and yeah. we tried hard and we had a brain. And uh, I think my, my success in life has been due to being inquisitive and being very enthusiastic because yeah. I didn't have any education. I left school at 16 to become a, a messenger boy for an advertising agency. And, um, and at school, um, which was right in the East End of London, my violin station, we had a sports day out in Wood, Wood, Woodford, which was outside London, just outside London. And we used to take, um, we used to get bussed out and play rugby or whatever we did. Mm-hmm. And on the way, we'd get a number 10 bus, and I always went past something that said, Wanstead Squash Courts. And I had not the foggiest idea what it meant. You walked by it. Yeah. With the, in the bus. The bus went by Every yeah. week for five years, we'd do this Wanstead Squash Courts. And then when I, and then uh, I left school at 16, 18, I had to do two years national service in Her Majesty's Royal Air Force. And we were up in a, under a slag heap in Lancashire, in a signal section. Absolutely true. A signal section built in a, under the lee of a slag heap for an exit. Of and coal, we, coal, slag heap. Slag heap, yeah. yeah. A slag yeah. heap is what they throw away in a coal, a coal mine. And then um, we used to go to another camp for the gym. And we went to this gym and uh, my friend Eddie said, oh, they've got a squash court. And I said, what's that? By this time I was 19 years old, you see. And I said, what's that? And he said, well... Fortunately, we found a couple of bats and a ball, and he took me in, and that was when I first hit a squash ball. Mm. But it didn't invigorate me. And then uh, when I was about 26, I emigrated to Montreal. Right. And somehow, my friend, my, my writer, I was in comedy then. Um, my partner played, was a, played table tennis for Wales, and he knew about squash. So I dibbled in there, mm. in and out, and then after 10 years in Montreal, went off to move to Toronto and uh, finally joined my first ever club called the Squash Academy. And mm. Queen Street with Bill McDonnell, Clive Caldwell, Sharif Khan. Um, and it was a terrific period. Wouldn't very few people don't realize, and I keep telling everybody, Toronto was the best squash city in the world mm. because of the, its English antecedents and the, and the power of, of its, the southern neighbour. Mm. So they built hard courts, mm. and they built international courts. Yeah. And, and doubles. It, and, and doubles. Yeah. So Toronto like had all on. these things. My yeah. first club, Squash Academy, there was the bar, and facing the bar there was a, an international court and an American court. <clears throat> Next to each other. Yeah. And How many point, courts were at the club? Oh, about 12. Yeah. yeah over four floors. And uh, yeah, the point was... Quite interesting watching, actually. Uh, the point was, um, you could sit stand at the bar and watch these two games. Exactly. But you had people like Sharif Khan, Clive Caldwell, Bill McDonnell, Gordon Anderson, who could just switch both games. No problem, they could go from one game to hardball yeah. to softball. That's right. And during the Menon Cup, which mm. was a major hardball game, hardball tournament, which I saw right in the beginning of, uh, the softballers, the Bruce Brownies, would come over yeah. and play in it. I had no idea what to do. Yeah. Only two players mastered it. Jeff Hunt mastered it. 
and Jahangir. And Jahangir, yeah. He did. Well, I mean, Jahangir did completely. Oh. I mean, his, ma- his matches with Talbot were legendary, well, as you well know. Yeah. Um, but only two players, you know, got it, and, and Jeff Hunt was one of them. Yeah. You know, he, was, he was terrific. I remember he came over and um, one evening in an exhibition, he played the, Cani- uh, the Canadian team. You remember Michael de Saunier? Mm-hmm. You know the name? Oh, yeah. Michael de Saunier, I forget also. Right? But he played all the, the three members of the Canadian squash team, one after the other. Right. And it was interesting that in the first game, he never hit a drop shot. He did everything to length. And then in the second and third game, he start going in for his drop shots. He was a lovely guy, Jeff. I was in. I was entered in the men's British Open men's over fifty-five one day, one year. I was at Wembley and I was practicing one of the court at Wembley the Ossian time. And suddenly I heard this voice saying, "How to find that racket, Martin?" And it was when the Prince Extender had just come out. And I said, "Oh, Jeff," I said, "You know, I don't know. I'm not very good. I don't know." I couldn't do it, it was any better. He said, no, he says, you know, your forehand's okay, but your backhand needs a bit of work. You, do you want to give, me a, give you a few tips? <laughs> yes. So Jeff Hunt came down and gave me a new backhand. That's amazing. <laughs> and, and, I, you know, it's four, four, the whole thing mm. broken down into four movements, mm. and I would go on in my club everywhere and just keep practicing. Practicing that. And I got a terrific forehand. My fo- uh, backhand, I mean, but my forehand's no good. So he, the, he needed to work on your foreign as well, it looks like. <laughs> um, I was never very sporty. I never... Well, uh, let's, go back, let's go back to high school. So uh, when, you, when you came back from, from the West Country... Went to grammar school. You went to, right, and they had sports? They had cricket and rugby oh, and well, soccer? We, and, it, was a, it was... the You know, you brought, being brought up in the United States, you're used to terrific facilities. Yeah. I mean, when I was working with um, Squash Talk with... Uh, um, what's his name? Ron Beck. Ron Beck. I went to all those... Um, clubs. Uh, not only the clubs, the schools, the universities. Yeah, right. And the prep schools. Yeah. Knocked me out. I mean, I went to a prep school. They had their own bloody ice rink. Their squash facilities were better than most of the squash clubs in England. Just knocked me out. The British weren't very good. I'll tell you a story. Ben Garner went to, um, went to Oxford. Mm. You know, Tim Garner's younger brother. And they went... The Oxford team went and played... Went to the States and played some... Like, some matches, and I said to him, "Who is the Oxford squash coach?" And he said, "We don't have one." <laughs> you know, you go to all the major universities in the states; they've all got terrific squash teams. Three of them, yeah. Coaches, Oxford did not have a squash coach, so that's how the Brits. Yeah. And we had a gym at school, and you know, we used to do gym. Uh, we'd have to go to the playing fields to play rugby. I hated rugby mm. because my first term. At Grammar school was at the Ilminster Grammar School, which was in Somerset, for boys. Mm. And I was mad keen on soccer, almost got into the junior house team in my first term. Mm-hmm. And then after my first term, we came back to London. And we got confronted with the rugby, and I hated that. And I, did, I was not very good at cricket. I didn't know how to hold the bat. I played yeah. wicketkeeper. So I was simply not sporting. Just didn't... I didn't have it. And I, I didn't have it, um, sporting instincts. There were some kids mm. who can look at something... They pick and, it up, they figure it out. Yeah. Understand it immediately, yeah. you know. And I knew this at uh, the Squash Academy. I'd be laboring away. Of course, I never took lessons, which is part of my problem. And people would come in off the streets and beat me in two months. <laughs> I just I understood the game. Yeah. Uh, when, you, when you came back from the West Country, that must have been such a massive transition 
Because when you had left the East End, you were four years old. Yeah. So you you, you probably don't really remember much from, from yeah. that. Then you come back from you, this sort of rural life, right? Yeah. To this massive city, tons going on. Well, that was been incredibly It was lovely to walk just, into a room and switch the light on. Because you had no electricity. That's right. And to go to a gas stove and put a kettle on. Because in the morning, my mother had to get up and make the fire. Out of coal? Coal, yeah. And wood and make the fire to boil the kettle to give her oh, eight wow. children breakfast. It was uh, she lived to eighty seven. My mum was tough. Yeah, tough Polish blood. So, what was the first squash? You, you saw some tournaments in in Toronto, obviously, right? The first squash I saw was a hardball. I, I could almost remember his name from the university. It was probably in the early. Toronto in the 70s, mm. the back, Badminton Racket Club, was it? Mm-hmm. St. Clair, and it was the Canadian Championship hardball. And it, his name will come to me. And it was the old fashioned court, mm. and it was, the gallery was full. The only people who saw it were anything with the first two strokes, mm. because it all took place in the back of the court. Next place, mate. And, um, that was the first time I'd seen um, uh, a professional tournament. Mm. But, I, you know, I'd seen... Um, the Men in Cup? You, well, did no, you that, see that? That was later. Oh, okay. I was in the Men in Cup in the beginning because by this time I had a reputation as a squash writer. But the reason that a squash writer I came along was that I, now I was really into squash and they had a big tournament, hardball tournament, the Magic Pan, which was a crepe, a crepe restaurant, and a Magic Pan tournament. And I couldn't afford the tickets. So I went to the Global Mail and I said, look, the sports editor was away there. Assistant sports editor was there. I said, look, it's a major tournament, the best players in the world. And um, you've got to cover it. And he said, well, well, all right. So I turned up at the tournament and said, hello, uh, I'm Martin Bronstein. From the Global uh, Mail. Yeah. From the Global Mail. And they almost bowed down to me. Oh, come in, come in, come in. And... Uh, as you know, Hashim Khan's sons lived yeah. in Toronto. Yeah. So I got to know all the, uh, the Hashim. I got to know Hashim quite well. Um, he made a play for my Norwegian lady. <laughs> Come, I give you a lesson. <laughs> he was a lovely man. Yeah, I adored right. the guy. Yeah. And I got to know, um, you know, um, Sharif, Sharif and, and Aziz. Aziz and, and all of them. Anyway, um, so I, I did that and I did... So did, was that the first tournament you covered? Yes. As a writer, yeah. And I, d- I did a report, and I, d- I had my camera, and I'd taken a picture of Hashim Khan, and the next day there was this report with the picture of Hashim Khan, because these guys... Sorry. Um, well, they, the, the tournament people were delighted. They came to me and said, would you like to write a report? So I said, yes. And they said, how much do you want? So I said, $400. And I went, so it came out, we came to an agreement, and I wrote a 5,000-word report. Nobody's wow. ever written 5,000 5, words. I wrote every fucking match, every, every match, every point, I wrote it. It was there, you know? And, uh, and where did that run, or did they... Just... Well, they were, they were also launching a, a squash magazine, you see. That's why they said, write it for our magazine. And there were two guys at this, it was called PIR, which is Canada's largest PR company. Mm. And they were... They persuaded their bosses to get into squash. So they're publishing a magazine. I published it. Eventually, I became the editor of the magazine. 
of the squash magazine and that's how my career as a squash writer started um, and so when you moved back to the UK, this clearly was going to be something you could do. Well, it, it didn't occur to me that I, I could do that. Mm. And, and so I thought I'd write a bit for The Observer, which I did. They published. I, I started to get a bit of a reputation. And then uh, um, the magazine was, was the Squash Player magazine yeah. was published in Epsom. Right. And by a guy who was a bit of a drunk, I shouldn't say that. Anyway, um, I started writing for him. Mm-hmm. And then for some reason, um, the, the owner of the magazine got rid of him and Colin McQuillan, the chief writer. And that's <coughs> when Ian McKenzie and I were brought in as joint editors. And he was, he didn't know anything about journalism. I thought he knew, but we used to have flaming arguments because he didn't know what journalism was about. Anyway... Um, what year was this? We're talking 1986. Mm. 1986. And uh, so we, we ran the magazine. And finally, it was decided that I would leave as editor and become consultant writer, Chief Writer. Which I Ian was a terrific detail man. Mm. He loved detail. And he could go through them, and I, I wasn't a detail man. And that was, suited me fine. I just wrote. Yeah. I went out, I wrote and wrote and wrote, and uh, started a, um, from the gallery. That started right there, you know. Human the back stuff. page, yeah. Well it, well, it was the middle pages there. It was, okay. And um, the uh, lady who was the company director, her husband was an artist, and he did a, we decided not to have a photograph of me mm-hmm. on this. He did a caricature of me, which became I used as my accreditation. Everybody got to know that. Uh, this lady and I have been together now for 30 years. But we won't go into that. Anyway, um, <laughs> we... Uh, and that last... That was, that was good fun. And then, mm. then of course, along came the web. And well, backing up, so in, in, in the... You were going to Wembley for the British Open. Oh, I did eight... Remember, it's in front of the front wall. Best exactly. seat in the Best house. Best seat in the house, yep. I saw all of Jahang Yakans. I saw Jahang. Now, remember, in Toronto in 1981-82, for some reason, Toronto in three years had two World Opens. Right. And it was in the second World Open that Jahang and Jeff Hunt played. Yep. He'd, he'd beaten, he'd beaten Jahang in Chichester. And in Toronto... The first game went 56 minutes, and Jeff Hunt won, and he lost the next three in 10 minutes. He was completely shattered. shattered yeah. And uh, that, was, that was the start of Jahangir Khan's unbeaten run. Right. He went that five match, years. Yeah. And I was in, in Toulouse five years later when, he, when he got beaten by Ross Norman. So I saw the whole, uh, whole history of that. And it was, it was it, when I first started... Jeff Hunt was number one, being chased by Gogi Aladdin, uh, Zaman. There were five Pakistanis chasing Jeff Hunt. And when I finished, well, at the end of that, it was, or during that period, Jahangir's period, it was Jahangir Khan being chased, chased by Chris Robertson, Chris Dittmar, the, the, the Martins, Martins yeah. um, and, you know, why not Palmer was at that point, uh, David Palmer and mm. Paul Price. There were a whole bunch 
whole bunch of Australians right up there, all shape, nipping at his heels, you know. And uh, it was it was interesting, but it was boring. Mm. When ja- Hangi and Jansha played in Amsterdam, the first point was six hundred no two hundred and eighty shots, six minutes and fifteen seconds, ended in a lat. <laughs> <laughs> ended in a let. Yeah. And that it was a boring, you know. Yeah, they really yeah. went beyond the short line. I mean it changed to me it changed when it was British under twenty three, Rodney Martin was playing um Zirak, and Zirak was beating him. And Rodney Martin said, to hell with this, and came back for the third game. He was two games down and started shooting. Zarek never knew what hit him. He was st- stuck to the tee as the, as the shots hit the net. And Martin won. Mm. And to me, it was, also, it was also the time when the graphites... Well, the rackets were huge. Yeah. Huge change. Right. That's right. And that... that changed it from an attritional game. And the scoring, they yeah. went to 15. That's yeah. right. So you didn't have to be serving. and Lowered the 10. Lowered the 10, da, 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 all these da. things, yeah. And um, it yeah. made it a much more interesting game. And along came, then along came, well, Peter Nichol came along, who was hmm. not, a, to start with, a talented man, but an intelligent player who, with Neil Harvey, became a very, very good player. And then along came Jonathan Power, you know, which was like it turned the game on the head. Mm. But this was all to do with racket skills and getting rid of the attritional game. You right, know? right. And uh, I, I saw all that change and, it, and, and change for the good. And, you know, in the, in the old days, games went for two hours. Now you're lucky if, if a game goes for 60, 90 minutes, people are going, wow. You know? But yeah. do you judge... The quality was squashed by minutes. No, you don't, do you? That's right. No, I, I was, I was in Marseille for the world teams and saw the, these Egyptians. They're just wonderful. They're just so good to watch. Yeah. And there's so many of them. <laughs> Men and women, unbelievable. And women. Yeah. 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 So uh, this was the era in the '80s when when squash was. You know, every European capital had a big event, and I mean, you were just going all over for these these portable court uh, events, right? Yeah, yeah just demountable courts. Yeah, know. yeah. Well, there was a German Open, there was a Dutch Open, there was the French Open, there was the Spanish Open. Uh, you know, there was the Monte Carlo. Oh, that was a terrific time. We go to Monte Carlo, get put up in Lowe's Monte Carlo, uh, and as you as you know, Prince Rainier was a squash fan. He came there. Um, <clears throat> right, and they would give us a, at the end of it. They would sit down in their big restaurant, and we'd see the cabaret, and we got treated like royalty. And we'd land at Nice Airport and get a helicopter into Monte. It was just You're kidding, helicoptered in. It was wow, enormous fun. As I keep saying, we didn't earn a lot of money, yeah. but who cares? But you know, in the eighties, it was uh, in eighty six. Um, the geezer, the the, 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 the pyramids. Mm. That was when uh, this was. Oh, you mean in the nineties, when, when when the pyramid started, <clears throat> like ninety six was the first one. Ninety seven, ninety six. Ahmed Barad was mm-hmm. big. Yep. They built this with five thousand seats, and they bus in families, yep. grandmothers, and yep. kids, and 
5,000 seats. And you'd sit there and there was illuminated pyramids in the Behind background. It, yeah. Just hit the, hit the front pages of, the, of all the newspapers. It was just an astonishing thing to do. I mean, the glass court had a lot, you know, had an enormous effect on squash. Yeah. Um, because nobody else could, well, I suppose you can put a tennis court anywhere, but... Uh, but they don't. <laughs> no, they don't. So uh, that was a very, very interesting time. Remember, in the 90s, I saw the first Egyptian girls on court. Mm. And they were girls, not ladies, the girls, with their legs covered. They had to cover their legs because they weren't sure to show their legs. And their arms. Uh, and their arms. And that was 96. Now look at them. Mm. That's how quickly they've come through. You know, um, you, you think, do, is there such a thing as an Egyptian squash gene? And my answer is yes. You know, they're, they're knocking seven bells out of England. Mm. England should be, because England, with England squash, and its lottery funding should have, should be, you know. Producing a lot of players, yeah. But we've got Massaro and Alison Waters, but one or two come through. But Massaro's been there since 1993 mm. in Penang, when uh, she was playing the world, in the World Juniors. Mm. You know, and she's been there around a long time. So we haven't produced. I don't know what it is, but we don't produce. Right now, when I was in Marseille, Chris Robertson had just left. This was last year. Had left England squash to go to Hong Kong. And he was now handing over to David Campion and Paul Carter. And Nick Matthews was about to expire. And... We don't know how long James will be able to. We don't know how long James Wilstock will be able to carry on, you know. And um, they won't have anybody to play with. Mm. England will not be in the finals any longer. Be lucky if they get to the quarterfinals, you know. But um, David Campion is not one of my favourite characters. But um, we haven't produced them. Why? We've got the money, we've got the setup, we've got everything. We've got a setup that most countries would be, would love to have. We're not producing them. But then, of course, you could say, there's the United States of America. We've got all these terrific facilities mm. all over the place. Yeah. And why aren't they, why haven't they? Mark Talbot was the nearest man they got to the world. Yeah. To world number one, wasn't right. it? Uh, what, why is this not, why, is it, why hasn't this happened? Yeah. Why haven't they produced? And I, you know, you could say the same thing. Why doesn't the United States produce a terrific rugby team? Yes. You've got these you know, huge... Great athletes, yeah. Football players. Mm. It doesn't take a lot to turn a, a football player into a rugby player, does yeah. it? Yeah. Well, we do well at sevens. Yeah, yeah, well, you would do. Um, so that was... Yeah. Uh, so when you were traveling, were you... Um, the the um, ISPA, like, were you... In with the players, like did you travel? Like when you when you yeah, it was very close. And would you stay at the same hotel? Yeah, 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 yeah. And was it you and Steve Line? I mean, who who were who was in the the press corps? Well, it was a very small press corps. It was Richard Eaton, Colin McQuillan, who was the Times man. Richard Eaton did it for everybody. Mm. Um, There was uh, Thatcher at one point, but as Thatcher worked for the Sun, he couldn't travel so much. Uh, a guy called Mike Palmer, who didn't do so much. And there were just virtually two photographers, one Fritz Borchert mm. and the other one Stephen Lyon. And Stephen Lyon was, you know, way better than anybody else. Except Debbie... Debbie Tessier. 
Tessier, mm. who I think had a lovely eye. Mm. She had a lovely eye, quite different from me, mm. from the Steve Lyon. But, you know, n- not better than him, different. Yeah. And that, but the thing is, all these guys, press photographers, come up from the news, the nationals, and think, oh, yeah. And they all make the same mistakes. Yeah. They don't know how difficult it is. But the lighting it's, is so well, it's, hard, right? Well, it's easy speed. now with digital. Yeah. You don't need the lighting. But in the old days <coughs> of film, you really had, had to know what you were doing. Yeah. And uh, they didn't. They didn't understand just how difficult it was. Yeah. They were used to, you know, soccer opening out of the sun. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, no, it was, a, uh, it was a very close group. We all knew each other. Uh, well, we sort of cooperated. Uh, we didn't go for scoops against each other, you know. Yeah. Um, and at, at, like after a match, everybody would cluster around. There weren't sort of you know trying to take a player away and get the official quote and people no, were all no, sharing. Yeah. No, we do. We we all get around here. Yeah, we, you know. But we we were sort of close enough. We could say to a, a player, uh, you know, can I speak to you later? And if you'd say yes, fine. Right. And they they, yeah. they didn't act like stars because no. they didn't see themselves as major people as major sports stars. Yeah. And, you know, sadly, I have to say this, that even when England, or Britain, if you like, had two men at the top, uh, Matthews and Wilstrop, number one and number two, both of those players can walk through any England town and not be recognised. Yeah. World champions. Yeah. England, England's press were too busy writing about football. Uh, Tim Henman losing. Mm. <laughs> so that, that's the, the sad yeah. thing. So they, ne- they never had that sort of ego thing going. Right. Um, was there one player that you felt close to, you know, off the court or, you know, somebody you became friends with? Not really, no. You, you, you maintained a professional distance from, from everybody? Well, or you, I mean, you got to know them pretty well. I got to know them pretty well, but never ever, you know, if you're a music critic, music critic never think you're part of the scene. Mm. You're not a musician. You're not a player. And, you know, I, I'll say this. I've watched more t- squash and you can ever think of I still don't see the game through the same eyes as a player mm. they see things I don't know because they've been there and I remember remember Dardia oh yeah, yeah of course the Egyptian. Egyptian yeah I remember sitting at one British Open next to Dardia mm. and listening and he was I learned so much listening to him analyzing what was happening in the game which I didn't understand mm. I didn't know you know you, you've you the, so I never tried to become one of the boys with the players. I wasn't a drinker to start with, and they weren't necessarily. But um, you weren't in the in the hotel bar, yeah. Well, drinking you, up with them. Well, yeah. the, some one or two would be, but you you never got close. There was an age difference. I'm in my fifties, sixties. Mm. These guys are in their nineties. They don't want to go an old fart like me, do they? <laughs> and um, you know, I I only had one or two players who weren't very pleasant. And they all sorts of imaginary things, you know. Why didn't I interview them after the game? Mm-hmm, yeah. Well, I didn't interview them after then because there was nothing that I needed. I to. wanted to ask. Yeah. You know, if something unusual happened, I could go in and say, "Well, what happened to you in the third game? Why did mm. you suddenly drop?" That didn't happen. Mm. So, you know, there's no reason for me. I don't believe in interviewing like they do now, like uh, you know, mm. the squash site mm. interviewing every player That's right. at length. After That's right. every match, it's yeah. rubbish. You know, most post-match interviews, regardless of the sport, are the are same. Painful, yeah, especially footballers. <laughs> yeah. So I yeah. never thought I. You know, I asked when I needed mm. 
to know something or mm. an explanation. But in the main, um, I think the only player who really got nasty was um, Susan Devoy. Mm. And one year she was on the court and she made a masturbatory gesture with a racket. And we reported it. She then went back to New Zealand and said, the whole British press are against me. I just, I was absolutely furious because we all liked her. She was a, a bundle of fun. She was, always gave a good interview. Great she got player. nothing yeah. but praise. Not one negative write-up. We reported that she used the handle as a, as a penis and she got upset. And that really, really upset me because... Mm. Um, it's the old thing you love the praise but you don't like the criticism yeah. you know, don't you know if you don't like that behave yourself you know yeah. so that was the only bad experience I had with with a, hmm. with, a, with a player first something you wrote interesting yeah. yeah often you wonder if they were even reading it so they didn't, they, they don't even notice something yeah, else, right? yeah. yeah. No, it's been been good fun. Good fun. So what, uh, Jauncher or Jahangir? Um, you saw a lot of Jauncher. I saw, yeah, I saw, I saw a lot of both of them. Yeah, you did. Jauncher was um, not not that very bright. I remember him warming up before a match, some big venue, and he's in a side room warming up before a match, and he's doing his stretching and so on, and this pretty young PR woman comes along and he stops and he says, what are you doing for dinner tonight? <laughs> um, but the, the, it was a lovely uh, contradiction. It was Jansha, uh, Jahangir built like a tank mm. and would sweat buckets. They used to do a pit stop between games, take off his shoes, his socks, his shirt, everything, and a complete pit stop. And Jansha would go white but no, no, almost no sweat. Mm. You could, it would just, as you got tired, you'd go white and white, but you could, could barely see it, you know. And they say that Jansha became the better player because when he realised the, the uh, traditional, game, traditional was, game was gone, he, he started getting how, shots. He learned how to shoot. Yeah. Yeah, he learned how to shoot. But he knew how to block as well. <laughs> he knew how to block. He had a lovely thing that he'd, he'd go to the front left corner and put in a terrific drop shot. And then stop, uh, stopping Peter Nichol particularly from making a direct line from the TN. And of course, the referee had to make a, a quick decision: could Nichol get it, or was it a winner? Yeah. And eventually, they got cottoned on to him, and they started giving strokes against him. Yeah. But he was uh, very shrewd, uh, very shrewd. Mm. And uh, of course, his manager became became the man at Harvard. I was like, that was a mistake. Barge. Barge. Very strange guy, Barge. Um, what no, about what about the women? What about uh, Michelle and uh, Michelle? Open, very Australian. Good. Sarah Fitzgerald. Sarah Fitzgerald. Um, again, no no side. One of the, one of the boys, if you like. And I said, she stopped playing when she was still beating the crap out of everybody. Mm. And I said, Sarah, why are you stopping? You go into a tournament, you win, you take the winner's check. And she said, Martin, I'm tired. I'm bored. I'm, I'm bored. I, I don't want to do it anymore. And I said, but no, she didn't want to do it anymore. And she stopped. Yeah. You know? And uh, yeah. good for her. But she was just too good. Just too good. Yeah. 
We didn't really produce a very good female squash player, except Masaru must be the best one. From England, yeah. 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 We never did produce a real crackerjack. Yeah. And well, in part, you had Nicole David dominating for nine, ten years. Yeah. And so somebody like Jenny Duncalf or Allison could have won a lot of titles. Um, yeah. But that was hard. Yeah. I don't think Duncalf had the, bra- the brain for it. I'm not saying she's stupid. She didn't have it. I mean, if you read um, this, this bit... Uh, about um, Nick Matthews, he was hard. He was, he, he, you know, when he was young, he was really nasty. He could be really rude to the referees, you know. And the thing about I keep telling everybody, Jonathan uh, Power, Power was never rude to the ref. Mm. He argued the decision. Mm. He didn't say to the referee, "You're an idiot," or you. He just said, "I think you, you know, I could have got that ball." Yeah. He, never, he was never. Jonathan Powell was a very, very bright guy. Yeah. Very bright. And very funny. I mean, it was oh. great entertainment. Oh, uh, my favorite line of his is when the referee said, no lead. And he said to the referee, you don't realize how fast I think I am. <laughs> Which is a wonderful great line. And he could do it with, you know, with, say, he, was a, he was a very yeah. witty guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm sorry they're Academy here. I had a Gary. lot of time for Gary. Yeah. I had a lot of time for both of them. Yeah. I think they're both terrific guys. And I'm sorry their academy went down. You know, it's government land. Just give it to them. It was, you know, they're not, they're not making piles of money out of it. And what I heard is they hadn't paid the rent. Mm. Yeah. But did you know that was where Jonathan's father first started? At that, at that Air, airport hangar? Air, Air Force Base. Oh, that was his base? And that, they had squash courts there. And that's where Jonathan's father started, in squash. 35 years earlier. So, no, Canada was good to me. Yeah. Canada was very, very good But you to never me. moved back after leaving. <clears throat> no, I, I, I stayed in London. Um, one of the, I, I, re, I regret, I, I never thought it through coming back to London. And, but, you know, there was my mother, but there was another brother who lived in Wales. Mm. And um, somebody that could have kept an eye on her, and social services. But what I didn't think about was my social life. All my friends, I left all my friends in Toronto. You know, I've been in Toronto 13 years. I made friends all over the place, as you yeah, do. All over Canada, yeah. Well, not so much all over Canada, but Montreal, you know, yeah. uh, with, in, with my squash and my comedy, mm. um, I made a lot of different friends. I got to London, and the guys I'd grown up with were no there, and the guys from the youth club were sort of very, very blinkered in their, you know, in their cultural yeah, look. Right. And uh, I, was, I was just, suddenly in, in my mid-50s, I was, I was nowhere. Mm. I had, you know, no social life, no sex life, no nothing. You know, just, ah. um, but everybody goes through that. Every mm. man, you know, everybody I know has had a terrific success and then down, you know. And you have to get through it. Yeah. I came out of it. I came out of it all right. And, you know, the the we started on squash site, squash now. Yeah. And uh, that was sort of successful. And then I started writing a squash talk. Mm. And uh, you did a lot of pieces for both those, right? I yeah, mean, you wrote a lot. And the nice thing was, you see, uh, there was a point I'd come to New York to do the new tournament of champions, and I'd be writing both the Telegraph and the Guardian. 
And you, you, they would let you write for both. Oh yeah, under a different name, you know. Well, well what was your pen name? Oh, or do oh, you have a whole bunch of them? Um, I think Gerald Meyer was one of them. My full name is Martin Meyer, Gerald Bronstein. So Gerald Meyer was one of them. I used to write for the local paper under the name of Nick Boaster. Um, uh, and, but you'd get there, you'd be in either Toronto or New York, and you'd phone them and say, right, we're going to blah, 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 blah. And they say, um, give us three paragraphs. That's right. Burger me. Right. Three paragraphs. And they would pay you by the inch? I mean, were you getting... They'd pay you for how much, yeah. So, well, sometimes you could get it. But you'd get, like, right. you'd get like 25 quid for that. Yeah, 30, 40 quid. Right. Never 25 quid. So the nice thing about the net, internet... You could write as long I as you want. I could write 2,000 words. I can write as much as I like, whenever I like. And uh, eventually what happened, because the people who were running our site, hmm. Horizon... By the way, I was the first one to do streaming yeah. of Squash. Horizon were going to do streaming out of New York, two of the champions. Yeah, Adrian. So he, Adrian, so he said to me, Martin, want you to be the, the voice. Yeah, you commentated, so, yeah. So he said, um, <clears throat> so I said, well, how much are you paying? He said, we can't pay you, but it'll look good on your CV. I'm 60 bloody five, mate. What CV? Yeah, and by the way, your CV has like a million things on it. <laughs> I mean, you've done everything. I've got three different CVs. Journalism, exactly. comedy, right. and, and sport. Right. Three completely different CVs. <laughs> um, so uh, what he had was his laptop, which I watched. The, the squash was actually over there. Mm-hmm. I'm watching there. With, I'm speaking into the mic of the laptop. That was your microphone. <laughs> that was my first streaming. <laughs> It was and the semifinals. Uh, oh, you know it, dude. It was the semifinals match. And, I don't even remember. And, and um, I think it was Peter Nickel. I forget which match it was. Do you remember which match? No, it was? no idea. You were the only commentator, right? That's right. So you had yeah. no, nobody to bounce nobody off else. of. Just What's the most bizarre squash club court that you ever played on? In front of the pyramids. You played. You you've got heard, on the court that morning. You heard of Mad Dogs in English, no? yeah? Well, Andrew Shelley and I said we go out and play on the court in the middle of the day, yeah. noon. You see, so we're on there and we're playing, sweating away. And, and and he hits a ball behind me, and I go for a back wall post, and I whack the ball, and of course, completely miss the back wall. Goes over, <laughs> and it goes out, and we're out looking for it, and we can't find the ball. <laughs> and Andrew said we've got to watch the newspapers for a headline that says. Camel chunks on squash board. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. No, that was that was That's enormous good. fun. Enormous fun. Yeah. Well, it's been what I mean. If you started in the late seventies, early eighties, well, it's been you know forty years. Oh yeah. Yeah yeah. You should write your squash memoir. Everybody says that. Huh? Really? Well, you should. The the other thing is is uh, at least write some jokes. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a short book full of uh, full of good jokes. Full of good jokes. Yeah. yeah. No, you. you um, as I said, I've never planned my life, but I've never said no, and I think that's. A very good attitude to go through. Yes. Yeah, always say yes. It's another experience. Let's do it. Let's find it. And I've never been, I have to say this, 
I've never been frightened of failing because mm. I know that failure doesn't matter. You know, you just... Who is it? Mike Todd of Todd A.O. He went bankrupt twice, you know. Keep going. Keep going. Come back. Yeah. Get up, dust yourself off. Again. I've never had huge failures, but, you know, I'd sit back say what? You get up and do it again. Mm. Outside the Glass would like to thank our producer, Grant Irving, and all our loyal listeners who have reviewed and rated the podcast, shared their enthusiasm for it on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and more importantly, has spread the word by talking about Outside the Glass with their squash friends. And may all your nicks roll. <laughs>